0: All right, as you can see, well, that's engaging the culture, but on your paper, we're talking about what is culture, okay? Um, man, there's, you know, I start putting some things together, and, and I, I start, and it's like, man, I don't know if I really got enough to cover this, but that didn't happen on this one here. I mean, there's like over 40 slides. I don't even know if we're going to get through it tonight, and if we don't, that's okay. We're not going to rush through it. We'll take questions, and we'll just pick it up next week wherever we, wherever we finish here um, just foundational ideas of what we're going to work through. But again, we need to know what culture is before we can affect it and before we can engage it. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But culture happens when humans interact with the world. Right? Everybody participates in culture. Nobody gets a pass on it. All right? We're all there. We're all part of it. Some people even help create culture. All right. And others are simply changed by it. So you're either going to be a, somebody that's going to influence culture, you're going to engage the culture, you're going to help change the culture, or you're going to be changed by the culture. The problem with being changed by the culture is, is you often don't even know that you're being changed. It's just incremental movements that just seem natural, they seem normal, right they infiltrate the church like that and we just don't notice it because it's just in small little steps so you're either going to engage it change it where you are or you're going to be changed by the culture there's no exceptions to that rule okay so we have a, a new creation a new culture there's this I'm going to read just a little bit to you let me give it to you it's out of this house how now shall we live? But it's, there's this prison in Quito, Ecuador. It's called the Garcia Moreno Prison. And uh, this guy, Jorge Crespo, man, he was a politician down in, in Ecuador. And, uh, but he was, a, he was a believer. And God was just kept prompting him and prompting him. He says, you know, what are you going to do with this faith of yours what are you going to do with this belief of yours and he was talking with his wife about it and all of this stuff and he finally or God kind of moved him to it um, man he his goal what God called him to he was going to reform the criminal justice system in Ecuador and its prisons now I don't know if you've ever been to a country like this The corruption is unbelievable, right? We can look at our government and we can say, yeah, it's corrupt. We don't know what corrupt is until you get into these nations. I'll never forget, I was in in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. I was on a mission trip and we were some college students and we were doing some work in a women's prison. These are the toughest women I've ever seen in my life. And we're doing some construction work in there, and a general in the army pulls up, and he's just one. He's talking to us, and he's got his whole entourage. And now, keep in mind, man, Tegucigalpa is like the third most dangerous city in the world, and I know that, right? And I've seen what's going on. And this general is sitting there, and he's just talking to me, and and we're going. He says, "You don't have to worry; your people are safe in my country." And what's going through my mind is this is the third most dangerous city in the world. You cannot keep us safe. The corruption within just Honduras, it's off the charts. Ecuador's the same way. Ecuador's the same way. And so a lot of the people that are in this prison, in this Garcia Moreno prison, they haven't even been tried yet in whatever their court of law is, they have not even been tried and found guilty yet. They're just waiting. And so what happens is, is their family will turn around and pay local officials to speed up their trial. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to not be found guilty. It, they just get to go to trial. And so they're paying big money to try to get their people just into the courtroom, right? And so this guy... Jorge Crespo, he says, man, he wants to reform this. Now, so Chuck Colson, right, he's the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministries, and this is kind of what this this, uh, Jorge is working through. Uh, He has been in prisons all over the world, right? And this is what he says he says, he's inside this prison now. He says, I was stunned. He says, I've been in more than 600 prisons in 40 countries, yet these were some of the worst conditions I had ever seen. Worse than Perm Camp 35, right? He was a Marine. Chuck Colson was a Marine. This guy had been through it. He had seen it all. I mean, he wasn't in the Air Force, but he was still pretty tough, right? Okay. And so he goes, and it was the Soviet gulag is what he was talking about. He said, worst in prisons in the remotest regions of India, Sri Lanka, and Zambia. And and so that just kind of sets that up. And so he goes into this prison, and man, he's in the heart of this prison. This is what he says, my heart sank. He said, truly, this was a kingdom of evil, hell on earth. And this was a prison that this Jorge was, was working in. And this will be a longer section that I'm going to read, and I apologize because I just can't do it any better than what they're going to do. And so he... They're moving from this, this main part of the prison. It's, again, it's just a hell hole. And they're, they're moving them to another section of the prison where Jorge has been working with, with some of the prisoners. He says, The holy silence held as the guards led us out of the yard and through heavy iron gates into another darkened corridor. Crespo told us that we were approaching the prison area that had been turned over to prison fellowship. We walked through a wide door, and we were ushered into a huge triple-tiered cell block. All at once, we stepped out of darkness and into a radiant burst of light. This is Pavilion C, Crespo said proudly with a wide smile. At the far end of the corridor was what looked like an altar with a huge cross silhouetted against a brightly painted concrete wall. "'Gathered in an open area before the altar "'were more than 200 inmates "'who rose up out of their seats singing and applauding. "'Some were playing guitars. others were glowing with joy and enthusiasm. "'Within seconds we were surrounded "'and the prisoners began embracing us "'like long-separated brothers.'" In Pavilion C, prison fellowship volunteers and inmate leaders provided rigorous instruction in Christian faith and character development to inmates who were brought out of the pavilions, which is that's the whole dark area that they just left, including the detainees' pavilion. Uh, regular worship services were held by a variety of priests and ministers. This was a holy community, a church like none I have ever seen. Yet, Jorge Crespo was quick to point out that Pavilion C was only a stop on the way of uh, on the way, a place of preparation, the ultimate destination was Casa de San Pablo St. Paul's house, so named because of Paul's imprisonment in the Philippian jail. This was a prison wing for those who had received into, who have been received into full Christian fellowship and who ministered to the rest of the prisoners. Crespo hustled us on to see it. Like Pavilion C, Casa de San Pablo was spotlessly clean with the added beauty of tiled floors and separate dormitories furnished with wooden bunks made by inmates. Beneath a flight of stairs, the inmates had partitioned off a small prayer closet containing only a bench with a cross on it. Because of the low ceiling, the men had to stoop down upon entering the room, then remained on their knees inside. The prayer closet was in use all day. Pictures of Christ and other religious symbols were everywhere, and I momentarily forgot that we were in a prison. In fact, it wasn't called the prison, but the home. And it was populated not by prisoners, but by residents. The means by which the home came into being is nothing less than miraculous. When Crespo first approached the authorities about taking over uh, a wing of the prison, these facilities were considered unfit, even by garcia Moreno standards. The bright and airy main room where we now stood Uh, Crespo told us was scarcely more than a cave, dark and unlit, shrouded with spider webs. Once he got the the go-ahead, however, Christian inmates and an army of volunteers from local churches went to work with shovels and tools. Tradesmen volunteered their services, as did local contractors. Many churches raised money, and overseeing it all was the tall, imposing figure of Jorge Crespo, Uh, the visionary who could see what others could not, a church inside a prison. It took several years of sweat and sacrificial labor and no end of Crespo's cajoling the officials, but eventually the vision became reality. Jorge Crespo changed the culture. One man just saw this the brutal effects that a corrupt government has, where humans aren't even treated as humans. And he saw them as image bearers of God. And his goal was to transform that. And literally, so they go from Pavilion C, they've got to be saved, right? They come to Christ, they grow, they go through Bible studies, and man, they are showing themselves followers of Christ before they ever end up in the home. He changed the culture. He engaged the culture. Man, that's flourishing. When we talk about flourishing, that's a picture of it. That's a picture of flourishing. That is what we're called to do in some way, shape, or form. It may not be in prisons, it may not be in another country, but wherever God has us planted, He has put us there to engage the culture with the cause of Christ. And I just thought that was a beautiful picture of that as we see that. So, my faith, your faith, our faith, it's not just a personal faith, it is personal. And it is intimate, but it's meant to be so much more. Right? It's a faith received from God with intended purposes of bringing transformation and renewal to not just us as individuals, but for us to bring transformation and renewal to the very culture we live in. That's what we're called to do. That's the cultural mandate. Um, a biblical worldview doesn't ignore culture or stand aloof from it. A biblical worldview transforms the culture. A biblical worldview not only understands God's story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, but lives it out in such a way to create a culture of redemption and restoration. Right. So often within the church, we talk about redemption, redemption, redemption. And it's the individual. And again, that's, that's a part of God's story. That's the grand story. But it's meant to be so much more than that. We can't just stop at Redemption we have to move to restoration. So when we do this consistently for a sustained period by the power of the Holy Spirit, we create a culture of flourishing. Again, there's no microwave. This this takes time. This takes time to make this happen. This is the cultural commission. This is what we're called to in Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. This is what we're called to. So, can we change the culture? Should we even try? Proverbs 24, 11 through 12 tells us, Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we do not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? We are to engage the culture. Paul engaged the culture in Athens. Right. Acts chapter 17 says he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who were present. And again, the thing about it is, man, when you when Paul talked with the Jews, man, he dropped scripture left and right. He was all over the place bringing scripture to bear. But he doesn't do that when he's talking with the Gentiles. He reasons with them. He brings biblical principles in but he's not quoting scripture why is he not quoting scripture to the gentiles i'm sorry they don't, have the basis for it. they don't have the basis for it yeah there's no understanding for them to even know what are you talking about these old testament scriptures or these scriptures with the word they've got nothing that grounds them in that that they can even understand what you're talking about and, well, they don't care. That, that is a part of it. They don't care, but they don't even know enough to care. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And so Paul doesn't use Scripture with that. All right? Kevin's a friend of mine. He's a pilot. He can get in there and start talking about all this pilot stuff, and I'm just like, mm-hmm, yep, yep. Thanks for sharing that. Is the plane going to leave the ground? Okay, that's all you need to tell me, right? That's all you need to tell me. Right, I go to the doctor, and some people love, all right, as a nurse just came into the room, right? Some people just love talking about medical stuff, and they just get in, you know, and just all of these details, and I'm like, stop, just stop. Tell me what time to be there and when I need to be there. That's all I need to know. Right, And I work with some ladies in the bookstore, and they just want to tell you just all of the details. I'm like, "Stop. stop. Sick, I'll pray for you. God's got all that other stuff. I don't need to know those details. But here, right, Paul starts with where they're at. Paul starts with where they're at. He's talking on their terms. He's talking about their things. He's quoting their prophets or their poets. I'm sorry. He's quoting their poets but eventually he's going to bring them to Christ. He starts with where they're at, not where he's at. Okay? We see Joseph engaged the culture in Egypt. Jesus engaged the culture wherever he went. The apostles engaged the culture. All right? God wants us to engage the culture. It's not a privatized faith. It is personal and it is intimate, but we're meant to take it public, right? It's not just for the sake of the gospel. And again, so often we talk about it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. The gospel's the starting point. The gospel gets us on the road of creating flourishing within our culture. It's never less than the gospel, but it's always gonna be more than the gospel. And we need to recognize that and we need to live that out. And it's not just... And it's always for the long-term good of the community. It's always for the long-term good of the community. Okay? Questions? We good? All right. Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you have welfare. Again, that word welfare... It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And it's more than just peace. Shalom is peace, but it's talking about prosperity and fullness and vitality and completeness. Right? The Jews were in Babylon in exile when this verse, when Jeremiah gives them this verse. They're not in their home. They're in exile for seventy years, and God says, "Seek the welfare of that city." Those that have brought you into exile, you seek their welfare. You pray for them. Right? The other verses around this man: build your houses, plant your gardens, right? See your children marry, flourishing. Engage the culture where you're at. This is what God called the Jews to, and he's calling us to that also. So if God's word is the source of truth, we ought to influence culture by speaking his truth and living his truth wherever we go. Man, to bring about cultural change takes a long time. Takes a long time. My wife and I were talking about this um, this morning, actually, and I don't know if, if the name John... Uh, Dewey means anything to you um but he was one of the him and got another guy Horace Mann was the other guy they were kind of the brainchild to the public education system back a long time ago back a long time ago and even then you had these socialist neo-Marxist ideas that were even being infiltrating the education system at that point in time and um it's a long march through academia. Uh, it's paid off well for them. It's paid off well for them. I think I've told this story before. You know, we, you know, the big battle now is, you know, parents, do they even know what's going on with their kids at school? Man, this was almost 30 years ago. One of our, our kids, he was in elementary school, and there were some issues, and we were kind of going back and forth and talking with the teacher. And, and they said, well, you can go talk to the principal if you don't like what I'm doing. They said, okay, we'll go talk to your principal. And, and um... And so we're talking with the secretary waiting for the principal to come. And the secretary says, and she just looks at us and she says, you know, when you drop, drop your child off at the door, they become our children. Oh, man, my wife went all mama bear on them. It was, a, it was an ugly scene. I mean, she just, what did you say? Man, she just, mm-mm. She goes, my child will never come here again. Pulled them out that day. So we'll figure out this homeschooling thing. But, so that whole idea that your child belongs to the school has been around a long time. That's that long march through academia. If we're going to change the culture, it's not happening overnight. We have to be consistent and persistent as we play the long game. Right? Andy Crouch stated it this way. I love this little quote. He says, the only thing you can do with Rome in a day is burn it. Everything else takes time. Everything else takes time. So, what is culture? Culture refers to everything that humans do voluntarily as opposed to involuntary. That was Kevin Van Hooser said that. Or culture is what makes the world, Andy Crouch. John Stone Street says, culture is for humans what water is for fish. It's the environment we live in and think is normal. It's what we think is normal. That's culture, right? And so we can come to Bellevue on a Wednesday night, on a Sunday, and, man, and we are, we've got community going on, and, man, we're talking about the things of the Lord. Hopefully we are, right? And we're moving, in, and we're, just, we're enjoying one another. That's the culture of Bellevue. That's the culture that exists inside these walls. That's an example of culture. Culture refers to what people do with the world. We build, we invent, we imagine, we create, we tear down, we replace, we compose, we design, we emphasize, we dismiss, we embellish, we engineer. That's what we do with culture. Remember when I was talking about the wheat to bread? What God created, he created everything with potential. It has potentiality. But we have to work to get the potentiality out of that. Right? God didn't give us cities. We got to go build cities. He didn't give us roads. We got to build roads. He didn't give us all of the medical wherewithal. We had to go and learn that. That's flourishing, that's building culture. That is what He's called us to do. And then culture shapes our perspective of reality. Jeff Meyer said, culture's greatest influence is in what it presents as normal. What it presents as normal. Right? There's a study that just came out of uh, uh, the UK and it was in the the Guardian was reporting on it. It's a paper over there. And if, if you don't know about it, good. You're, you're, you're a better off person for it. It's a very liberal progressive paper. And so, but they were talking about If you were to look at the culture of England just 40 years ago, you wouldn't even, people today would not know how to live in that culture. The culture had just changed so much. And they wouldn't even know how to live in it. Because what's today is what seems normal. And so when you are watching... God forbid if you watch the Barbie movie or any commercials or anything like that, and what they present in there, right? What they present in there as normal, that's the narrative that they're trying to drive. And then what they put in there as, oh, that's an aberration. Oh, mm, you don't want to do that. It's what they present as normal is what your culture is. And so when you watch commercials and you got gay marriage going on or whatever the case is they're presenting that as normal they don't explain it they don't justify it they don't even talk about it this is part of the commercial it's part of the movie it's what they present as normal right and so when we go have discussions outside of these walls and people get dazed and confused it's because like okay you're talking about something that's not normal, at least in their worldview, And so they struggle with that. That's what this class is about. How do we go and have those conversations? Okay, questions? All right. We need to understand culture. We need to understand the culture. All right? We need to understand the culture, the what and the why others think the way they do. The what and the why others think they do. You now at some point in time, we have to quit asking, what in the world's going on in this, in this culture and start figuring out what's going on in this culture?" Again, I was just having a conversation with somebody today, and it was like, "Man, it was just like overnight it changed." And it feels that way. It really does. It feels like it's overnight, but the reality is, man, it's been moving in this direction for 50, 60 years, if not longer. You just reach a tipping point, and that's when it hits that tipping point, you're like, ah, this has changed overnight. No, it's been happening a long time. We've just not been engaged with it. We've not understood what's taking place in our culture. Culture keeps us from absorbing false ideas. Understanding the culture, I'm sorry, keeps us from absorbing false ideas or can keep us from absorbing them. Um, Understanding the culture, we can live effectively and purposely or purposefully in this cultural moment. Again, it's kind of um, the tribe of Issachar. They understood the times and they knew what to do in those times. When we understand what's going on in the culture, we can effectively engage the culture. And again, this is what we always have listed. Engage the culture with and for the cause of Christ to further his kingdom wherever your feet take you. See, God made us with the capacity to do something with the world. We have the ability to bring a flourishing culture. We have an ability to build cities, right? To put people on the moon, to build tunnels underneath the ocean. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that we have the ability to do, right? And you think about the Tower of Babel, right? What did God say? Man, man. We need to do something because they'll be able to do whatever they set their mind to do. That's what they were created to do. They just weren't created to rebel against the creator. Potentiality is everywhere. We have the ability to bring that potential out of whatever is before us. We just need to do it for the glory of Christ. So creating culture was part of God's original plan. That's the cultural commission, the cultural mandate. And we'll kind of break that down more next week um, as to what a lot of that is. Some of it will be repeated, but we'll, we'll flesh more of that out next week. Culture includes both good and bad. All right? The sexual revolution of the 60s, bad culture, we're still reaping that today. But we also have William Wilberforce, right? That was good culture. They ended slavery. The guy spent almost his entire adult life working to end slavery in England. Before he passed away, England abolished it. Good culture, there's bad culture. We just need to be able to know what the difference is. So how do we get it? Right. Only that which is created in his image is capable of creating culture. Animals don't create culture. They don't build civilizations. They don't put other animals on ships and sail them away. You know, my wife loves bluebirds, and so she, we have this bluebird house in our backyard, and, and we're always, apparently we're supposed to go out. At least that's what she tells me. You're supposed to, every year when, they, when they're gone, you, you take the nest out so they can build a new nest. And every year, you know what? The nest that I took out looks just like the nest that they built last year. They don't add any rooms onto it. They don't put a bay window or a hot tub. They add nothing to their nest. They build what they were created to build. There's no culture. There's nothing new. They don't visit somebody at other bluebirds' house and say, hey, what have you painted your walls? They don't do that. They just build a nest. And it's the same nest each year. It just looks the same. Animals don't create culture humans do humans do there's this mars hill audio guy by ken myers it's audio journal podcast and he looks at six things that he believes creates culture six things these are it artifacts institutions practices beliefs moods and styles and meta-beliefs and we'll kind of look at each one of those a little bit right an artifact it's objects made by humans, right? The phone, artifact. It's an artifact. Laptop, artifact. All right? Some artifacts have little to no impact on the culture, right? Anybody remember this? If you don't, don't worry. You're a better person for it, right? The chia head. I used to laugh at it. Now I'm like, man, I wish I could. I could get a little of that. Right? Gee, it didn't change the culture. <laughs> Probably didn't even make much money. A few jokes. It just didn't change the culture. Right? Other objects that have been brought about, they changed the culture. The Gutenberg Press, the automobile. I mean, you just think about the Gutenberg Press. Man, it came about the only way that you would get a Bible is you would have to pay somebody, which means you had to have a lot of money, a scribe, to write out the Bible for you. That's how you got it. So only the wealthiest people would even have a Bible. Man, the Gutenberg Press changed that. It made the, you know, I I say... You can mass-produce the Bible, and that just sounds kind of funny coming out of the Gutenberg Press, but consider the handwriting, it was. And so the, and when you can mass-produce something, the price comes down, right? And it makes it more affordable for more people to read it. And it, at the same time, right, this is where you got Calvin's 99 Thesis. You've got these things that are taking place, and it changed the world. The Gutenberg Press. And again, the automobile, how we get around. You don't have to use horses anymore. It doesn't take you weeks. You can get there in days or day. How about digital technology? Artifact. Texting, iPhone, drones, artificial intelligence. Oh, man. I don't even... I, 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 won't, I won't do this. Like that. I was going to... It may embarrass somebody, so I'm not going to do that. There was a time when texting... You couldn't give texting away. As far as the phone companies, you couldn't give it away. Nobody would use it. It was free and nobody used it. Man, I remember when my youngest son, he was leaving high school. I mean, it was not uncommon for him to send three to 5,000 texts in a month. And I'm told there's there's kids way more than that. are you kidding me? 3,000 texts in a month? Artifact. Changes how you communicate. I mean, here's the crazy thing, right? We'd call our son, and he, I think I told you this. He'd never pick up the phone. We'd text him. He'd respond right away. What was up with that? Texting. And you know what? I don't send 3,000 texts a month, but I send a lot. Because right? we send a text because we don't want to talk with the person. Is this easier to say, yep, no? Give them a room number? Artifact. So, institutions. Institutions are organizations that preserve or promote cultural features. Right, and These are a few institutions, schools, sport leagues, sports leagues, government, professional organizations. You know, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological uh, Lawyers. You got all of these professional organizations. Those are institutions. Those are institutions. Right. Institutions we connect with will determine how we think and talk. And I'm going to come back and we're going to deal with these institutions a little bit more when I get to the end. Um, of these, of these six things, but, um, again, institutions, they can consider who our heroes are or what's fashionable. Now you talk with a lot of young people and their sports, sports people are their heroes. All right? Give me a good author. That would be my hero, right? Francis Schaefer, my hero, C.S. Lewis, right? These are people that I, man, I admire them. I love what they write. Um, so again, what's your institution, and then we have practices. It's any traditional activity or observance by which people express the values of, of certain cultures. And so we can see that in holidays, weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, and that list can go on and on and on. Uh, these are practices. And then we have beliefs. It's any idea that a person or group holds as, common under, as a common understanding or conviction. Right. Ideas about God, ideas about truth, identity, reality. All right. And so when when somebody says, hey, you do you, or be a better you, right? I mean, they're telling you, oh, it's this idea that truth is subjective. You do you. There's not an objective idea of truth. You got your truth, Henry? I got my truth. We're okay. We're okay. Then you have moods and styles. Such communities in the big cities uh, look and respond differently to those in the small town. We can drive around Memphis and you can see more and more numbers of of the Tesla EVs, right? You go into a farming community, you're not going to see many Teslas. You go out west, you know, (laughs) you got to drive to an hour to get someplace, you're not going to see any Teslas. It's the moods and the styles of those communities. It's the ethos. It's the dress. It's the music that people listen to. It changes from community to community. And then there's meta beliefs, right? It refers to what someone thinks about the grand scheme of life. And these are the questions that every worldview needs to answer, or at least tries to answer: which is origin, identity, meaning, morality, and destiny. These are the meta-narratives. These are the big questions. Every worldview attempts to answer them. Every culture has them. Every culture has them. Now let's go back and look at these institutions because there's really, there's three institutions that God has ordained. So we don't want to set their thing. Wow, all institutions are bad because they're not. Okay, they're not. There's three institutions that God has ordained and These are three core institutions. They serve as anchors for our societies and our cultures. God ordained the marriage and the family. This is literally the first institution that he ordained in the garden. Government is an ordained institution that God gave us. And then the church. Look, as long as these institutions are operating according to God's purpose and design, we can see flourishing happening. We can see good things happening within the culture. But when they begin to crumble, so does culture. When you see these three institutions begin to degrade, culture's degrading already. Right? The enemy's been seeking to destroy these for a long time. Right? Marriage has been redefined. And it really even goes back before that when you came back to the no-fault divorce. Right? First came in California. California. And just spread from there. The marriage began to crumble as God intended it to be. And like I said, now we redefine it. It's no longer just one man and one woman. Be whatever you want. The family's been redefined. Right? You got homosexual people in a relationship. They've purposely chosen a sterile relationship, but they want to be able to have children. And it's like, well, you can have children. Right? Get your relationships aligned biologically and you can have children. But no. They want to be able to in vitro fertilization, surrogacy programs, and really what we've done is we've turned children into a commodity. Right? We tell the children, I need you to fulfill my identity. Man, what a tragedy that we would put that on children, right? As parents, we're to give of ourselves. We're to sacrifice for our children, but what we ask for children now is, well, I need you to make me whole. Nobody can bear that weight, especially a child. We've just turned them into a commodity. Family's been redefined. The church has been under attack both externally and internally. Right? The whole idea of progressive Christianity. Again, there was this, uh, this is over in Oxford. I was listening to this on uh, Al Moeller's program. I don't know if you caught that this morning. Um, But he was literally talking about there's this LGBT group, and they've just gone to all of the churches in the area, and they were scoring them as far as one to five, one being the worst, and five being the best. And they were scoring them to be, well, which ones are just more affirming of the LGBTQ lifestyle? And so the ones were the ones that, you know, they marriage is one man, one woman. There's two sexes, male and female. You know, crazy biblical stuff. And they got a one. And they got the big, you know, they... They got the red light because they were following red, yellow, green also. Just to, just to warn all the people so that they would know. And so, but it wasn't enough that they were just they would sit there and they would post. You know, they said in the thing. He we're, says, we're researching and we're taking names. We're taking names. And they'd list the churches and the pastors and everything that were ones and that were twos. And, and basically a five was somebody that just fully affirmed the LGBTQ lifestyle. Which, interestingly enough, that's not a church, right? It's not even a church. And I was sharing in a class this morning, you know, there was was a group of people that took names in the past. And they made a big deal about it. It was called Nazi Germany. Man, if you were a Jewish sympathizer and they had your name, you weren't long for the world. You usually, You get shipped off in a train and you'd never show up again. And that... And so we got churches that will turn around and fly. You can go to Boston and you can find churches there and they'll have their, their, their rainbow flag and their BLM flag. That's not a church. It's just another organization. It's not, but it's not a church. When these three institutions crumble, right the whole culture crumbles it won't survive and then the government has ceased to fulfill its role so what's the church's response to all of this this guy richard Niebuhr he wrote a book titled christ and culture and he gives us five responses in the at least that the churches have done in the past okay and we're going to look at these today or tonight all right, so there's these five approaches. And within each approach, there's, there's some truth that's bound up in them. But as we work through it, I want you to think about how does this approach align with the cultural mandate or the cultural commission? How does it align with the cultural commission? Okay? So the first one is Christ against culture. Christ against culture. All right. Those who follow this approach do so because they believe the world is the region of darkness into which the citizens of the kingdom of light must not enter. You don't want to go in that prison. It's this darkness. Those people are done. Thank God Jorge Crispo did not see it that way. Right? Groups that adhere to a Christ against the culture, the Mennonites, the Amish, Quakers, The monks, monasteries, the Essene community that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And we see good that can come out of these communities. Again, I just think about the monks during the Roman, at the the height of the Roman civilization. Man, these Christian, what we now call monks, man, they literally just pulled out of the whole Society. They just separated from themselves and, and they got in their monasteries and they continued to read and pray and study and farm and build and do all the things that are necessary for life. And they kept themselves isolated from the community. All right? But then Rome fell. Literally, it was just a collapse that there was no structure. There was no government. There was no source of help. There was nothing. It was just literally in shambles. The monks were able to fill that gap that the government could no long, was no longer there to fill. And so they started schools, and they were teaching the people how to grow their food. And they were coming back in, and they were restoring a culture that had been just effective for so long. That's good. The problem with that is, is as you go on and you go to the fifth, the sixth, the seventh centuries, right? It becomes the Roman Catholic Church, and it becomes just as corrupt as Rome was, where you could buy condolences. and And again, it started. It was a good thing. It just it didn't end well. And so Christ against culture has some benefits. It has some benefits to that. You know, I, I just wrote this down. It's, you know, Christ against culture says, I'm going to the mountain and I'm not coming down. I say that about every other week. I'm done. I'm heading to the mountain. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, right? It's called the Benedict option. God just won't let me go. To, it keeps convicting me and says, no, you can't go. The Benedict Thompson. They don't want, or they're not willing to be in the culture. Okay. Then there's Christ of Culture. Those who follow this approach see Jesus as Messiah of a particular culture. Right? They they see that right. Israel is no longer God's chosen people. America has become that. It's called replacement theology. Just in case you wonder, that's heresy. That's heresy. I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with that idea alone. Um, I don't even have time to break it down for it tonight. Replacement theology is not a biblical idea. But Christ against culture, their intentions may be good, but the end results have been harmful. Right, we can see that with apartheid in South Africa, and I believe Christian nationalism is moving in that direction also. Yeah, Henry. I'm not trying to steer you up No, okay. Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. can you give an example of, because people in government, like somebody here became a politician and practice their faith in a while. Yeah. With that said, what would a difference be in someone being a government living out their faith in Christian nationalism? Because if you you know, if you applied the Ten Commandments, it would be a better society. Not not better. Granted, granted, I mean there's Christian principles that if they were applied they would be good and some of this depends on how you define Christian nationalism. Okay. And so if it goes back to, like I said, I was just on a webinar last night and we were kind of looking at this and this one, and the guy that was, I'm not saying he was for Christian nationalism, but he was, he was just kind of making this case. And he was, he says, you know, I think, um, anyway, sports leagues. He said, I think communities should pass laws that you can't play any sports games, kids sports games before two o'clock on Sundays. And I'm like, you know, that's the parent's job. And we don't want to, as a parent, we should not abdicate our roles to the government or anybody else for that matter. They're my kids. If I don't want my kid playing in a baseball game on Sunday before 2 o'clock, then they don't. And literally, I had a son, he played travel ball. Oh, my gosh. We loved it. We hated it. We just told the coach. I says, we go to church on Sunday. If there's a game on Sunday, if it's later in the day, okay, we we might be able to make that. If you got a nine o'clock game on Sunday, he's not going to be there. Is that going to be a problem? Well, I don't like it. That's not what I asked. Is that going to be a problem? Because we were going to be in church. That's my role. That's not the local government's role. Now, there are some things that we could turn around and say, you know what, pornography. We should pass laws to do something about pornography because it affects the whole culture, and it's, it's defective and it's corruptive. But so what we do is if we end up taking and we're trying to create a theocracy, right? That's how some would define Christian nationalism. That's not what God's called us to do. He's called us to live out our faith, right? But under a Christian nationalism, depending on how you define it, it comes down, no, we're passing these laws and you have to follow them. Well, but again, it comes down to because what you—that is good—and we and there are laws against that. Do we follow them? Then we don't. But here's the other issue: is whose job is it to take care of the widows and the orphans? It's the church. It's not the government's. So again, we've abdicated a role. And so even under a Christian national theocracy, it's going to be the government that still takes care of it. That's not scripture. And so again, are there good things within that? There can be. It depends how you define it and how you roll that out. But ultimately, God's not called us to live under a theocracy. He gave us government as an institution. And you know what? We are to influence that and we are to engage that. But when we talk about this idea of a Christian national, again, it depends on how you define it. There's Christian principles that they're live out. The world's going to be a better place to live in. Clearly, we know that. If we keep going down the road we are, secularism, postmodernism. the world is not a good place to live in. We, we, can, we know that, right? I was talking with uh, somebody today about a pro- the proverb, train up a child in the way they should go, right? We're all familiar with that, I think. He says, what do you think about that? I think it's a principle, it's not a promise. I said some, a lost person, an atheist, can live by the principles that are in Proverbs and live very well. Live a good moral life. Live a successful life. We would think, man, they are, they're there. They don't know Christ and they're not going to heaven. But you can live by those principles and they're good for individuals and for families and societies. But what we can't do Is forced out on other people. We can't force that on other people. And ultimately, if we're looking at this Christian nationalism as a theocracy where they're going to pass these laws, we're forcing that on other people. Not just that pornography is bad, it's just that your kid can't go play in a game on Sundays before two o'clock. Or whatever else we see that as. You got to be in church somewhere. We can't do that. Christ hasn't called us to that. So I think that becomes the issue there. And again, that still needs to be you know, Where is that going to end up at? We're not even close to that. I mean, it's, right now it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea of, of theory. We're so far away from that. It's But the government is never going to be our Savior. The government will never be our Savior. So then we have Christ above culture, right? The goal is not to change culture, but to point people to God, right? And that sounds pretty good. I'm like, yeah, I think we would all agree, right? Once they come to Christ, they can live a more virtuous life. Okay. I like that. I know the life that I lived before I knew Jesus and the life that I live today are diametrically opposed. That's a good thing. That's a good thing for me for my marriage, for my family, for my community, that I am no longer living the way that I used to live. That's a good thing. The benefits is we keep our eyes on heaven and the eternal aspect. The negatives, right? Christians can end up working with non-Christians to grow a good society, right? We're talking about moralistic therapeutic deism, which is like, okay, I want God to make me good. I just don't want him to control all of my life. Right? That's what that is. And so as long as we can get a good society going where it's beneficial for most people, then we can work together. You know, it's just like um, with the whole gender ideology now. You know who's on the same side? Christians and atheists are on the same side on this discussion. Because atheists, if you're going to, live out your belief look it's science and it's biology that's all it is anything else is just a farce okay i can agree with richard dawkins on that that might be the only thing that i ever agree with richard dawkins on but i can agree with that and so we can we can end up having partners that maybe we don't have examples of it were christians in nazi germany Right? They were complicit, not all, but many were complicit in Hitler's ideology. You know what? If we'll just not rock the boat, we'll be okay. I don't know if you heard the story, right? The churches on Sunday, they'd be, they'd be singing, but man, they'd be loading up Jews on these trains and they're taking them off to the concentration camps and they are screaming for help as it's going by the churches. You know what the churches did? They sung louder so they wouldn't have to hear the screams. Christ above the culture. There's benefits, but there's negative, and this is on all of them. Again, we can see this thing with critical theory and critical race theory today. Uh, We see churches. You know, we just need to be seeker-friendly. We just need to love them, and then we can bring them to Jesus. The problem with that is... You're not bringing them to Jesus. They're bringing you more to the world because you're compromising on Scripture. You're compromising on what Christ has called us to do. Positives, there's negatives. It becomes a form of pragmatism. If it works, it's good. If it works, it's good. Again, man, Nazi Germany, man, after Hitler had it for a while, it was efficient. Its trains ran on time. Its schools ran well. It was a picture of efficiency. But man, the wickedness and evil that was driving all of that was was bad. And so then we have Christ and culture in paradox. Uh, let's see if I can get this to a stopping point. Christ and culture in paradox. It believes culture is important because God left us here. Right? But it's also broken and cannot be fixed apart from the redemptive work of Christ. Amen. I'm there. But it can't be fixed because not all will come to Christ, so our only hope is heaven. So don't try to change the culture because you're wasting your time. Right? There's no point in investing in culture. Christ has not called us to win the battle. He's not called us to claim the victory. He's called us to be faithful with what he's put before us today. Again, we, we don't save anybody, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit drawing people to Christ. God saves them. The victory's his. The battle's his. We just need to be faithful with what he put. Win, lose, or draw doesn't make any difference to us. Are we going to be faithful with what Christ has put before us today? And I tell you, this is just a neat story. Just happened today. Just getting in the car. I was coming into uh, the church. and uh, was this Man, I was just like, you know, God, the victory's yours. It's not mine. Whatever you have for me today, let me walk in faithfulness. But let me see your victories. And that was, I was just praying that on the way to work. And so my wife calls me. And this is a friend of hers. And she says, you're not going to believe what happened. And I'm like, man, tell me. I need it. And she says, her son. And she said her son's name, this lady's son. And he said, he called his parents up. And he said, I need to have a, can we have dinner on Wednesday night? And they're like, uh, yeah, sure. Y- you know, as a parent, oh my gosh, this is bad, right? That's what's going through your mind as a parent, at least most of us. And so they're having dinner with their son. And he says, mom and dad, you know, five years ago, I would have said I was an atheist. And, and his parents knew that. I mean, that was no surprise. He says, two years ago, I would have told you I was an agnostic. He says, I was at work last week. And God broke me. I was just weeping and sobbing back in a stock room where he worked uncontrollably. And this guy's supervisor shows up and says, Hey, what's going on? And so he told him a little bit about why he was in this condition. His supervisor shares the gospel with him and he gets saved. The victory's the Lord's. I don't know who that supervisor was, but he was faithful with what God put before him. That's what God calls us to do. Whether the person says yes to Jesus, no to Jesus, maybe to Jesus, that's not our business. Our business is to share the gospel. And whether the culture is crumbling around us and it will never be restored and it's going to follow the way of Rome... We're still to go out and infect the culture. We're still to go out and engage the culture. The battle's not ours. The victory's not ours. Being faithful to what Christ has called us to, we own that one. And we need to be faithful with what Christ is calling us to and invest in the culture regardless of the condition of the culture. Questions? Problems? Concerns, we're going to stop on that note there. We will come back and do Christ, a transformer, or culture. We'll start there, and then we'll kind of move into the whole cultural commission, cultural mandate next week, and ho- hopefully that one won't be this long, um, or maybe it is. Let me close this in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we do just thank you that the battle is yours, the victory is yours, and the, we know you win. Uh, Lord, we don't see things as you do. Uh, We certainly don't walk in obedience always, I pray that you'd forgive us for that. But, Lord, we want to see you moving and working in our lives individually, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our churches. Uh, Lord, the battle's yours, the victory's yours. I pray that we'd be filled with the Spirit of God, and we'd be faithful with all that you put before us this week. Uh, Lord, and let us do it for your glory. Let us go out and create a culture of flourishing that is good for all. I pray your blessings upon each person here, Lord. Guide them and direct them. Be their strong tower and their everlasting refuge. And it's in your glorious name we ask these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.